As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Misano, the home of Italian MotoGP riders. More a bike track than a car track. Once again produced... Not a barnstormer, but a thriller of a MotoGP. We had three Ducatis on the front row, a Ducati 1-2 at the finish, Aprilia on the podium, five Italian bikes inside the top six. But the biggest thing to come out of Misano 2022 was Pecco Bagnaia winning his fourth race on the trot. Assen, Silverstone, Red Bull Ring, Misano. If we go back to the end of Germany... He was 91 points back of Fabio Quattararo. Now he's 30 points adrift with six Grand Prix to go and 150 points still on the table. This really does have all the signs of a showdown to the last race at Valencia and the most classic of years in MotoGP. Toby Moody here with Simon Patterson and Valentin Harunchi to talk Misano through. Simon, do you think... Claudio Domenicali's heart rate is now under about 200. Um, no, probably not, actually. Um, because, well, both because of what we saw from Bagnaia yesterday, from, from what we, you know, was really a flawless race. Um, also, what we saw from some of the other Ducatis, which was a, a bit of an up and down day with Jack Miller crashing out of the lead. Uh, Marco Pazeki crashing out of what looked to be podium contention, and then also finally out of uh, out of Enea Bastianini's last lap uh, attempts to win the race and deny it to Bagnaia, which, despite Ducati being adamant there are no team orders and play, Domenicali was quite peeved about afterwards. Um, so yeah, all in all, a rather uh, a rather interesting day for the Bologna brand, but you know it really does look like the title chance championship is on for them. Like the charge is there. Um, Bagnaia has been flawless not just this weekend, but for the you know for the best part of uh, what six weeks now, with the way he's racking up wins. Um, I'm still you know I've been skeptical before in the podcast about Bagnaia. Because we've seen what happens whenever he he's got under pressure in the past, but it looks like 
hopefully he's got over that, like that demon's buried, and uh, that he's in for a, well, that we're in for a spectacular end of the season. And ultimately, four wins is four wins. Not not really much to argue there. Uh, not really, I don't think much room for doubt left in terms of the championship capability if he's won four on the trot. But to revisit and to accentuate a bit that I thought would maybe come later in the podcast, but it's really the, the main thing I want to talk about. So I'm going to redirect it here. Uh, I can see why Domenicali was mad because I had big time Andrea Iannone flashbacks when Bastianini braked late at turn four and had to sort of get out of the way of potentially crashing out Bagnaia and ruining Ducati's title chance. I don't really understand why he was in a position to do that to begin with. I know it's just five points, but it it's not just five points. And I know it worked out well for Ducati, but the worst case outcome wasn't even Bastinini crashing out Bagnaia, because I, I guess you trust Enea not to do something insane. He's a clever, good rider. But the worst case scenario would be Bastinini putting Bagnaia under too much pressure and Bagnaia buckling in a desperation to keep the lead, which was entirely possible in something... We've seen not just Pecco, but we've seen a lot of riders do. That wouldn't have been an, even an indictment on Pecco if that happened because he he needed this win to stay in the hunt, basically. Second, I don't think it would have been quite good enough. He needs every point on the table. And putting him under extra pressure from within your camp is a good way of ensuring that he's sooner or later going to stumble and the whole thing's going to end. I don't... I don't understand this whole free to race thing at this point in the in the championship. I'm sorry. Uh Inea honestly should be in the title hunt too now. If not for the for the Red Bull Ring thing, I think he would also sort of be there not far off of uh Alation Peko. But the Red Bull Ring thing did happen. He's not in the mix. He's won three races this season already. Tell him to hold back. Tell him to hold back, win the race with Peko, win your fourth race on the trots. Show Yamaha and Fabio that you're you're willing to do what it takes. Add some extra psychological pressure on them. I know all the fans are going to hate it, but I'm not going to hate it. I get it. Ducati's not won a rider's title since 2007. I get it. You have to do what you're going to do to win it. And if you're not going to do what you have to do, then maybe you maybe you don't deserve it. This came out a lot more harsh than I intended it originally. Apparently, I have much stronger feelings about this than than I thought. Well, Domenicali did say that he spoke to them before the race and all the Ducati riders, quote, know that they don't have to be aggressive with each other. They don't have to be, you know, silly. Last lap job. Um, And ultimately, they weren't silly. But at the end of the day, he's got four on the trot and he's got 100 points out of 100 in these last four Grand Prix. Um, So, yes, Bagnaia's on this roll that doesn't even need confirming but where do you think the head of Quattararo is now is he in a corner that he's never been before he's been there before Um, I think he was there at the end of 2020 when a a title challenge fell apart Um, and he learned some tough lessons from that and he came out of it swinging and won the championship the next year and that's essentially what has to happen again he has to make sure that he doesn't dip um, I think that the one good thing for him is that even though the, the first of the overseas races is back to back with the European race this year for maybe the first time ever, um, I think that the flyaway races will still be a bit of a reset 
because it's such a culture shock going to race overseas and not having the trucks and the hospitality and the huge amounts of you know people and it, it will be different there. Um, I also think that there was a bit of a home field advantage this weekend to uh, to Bagnaya that the Quadraro was aware of, um, and and a bit of a home field advantage for the Ducatis as a whole. Uh maybe the best thing that could happen to him now actually is so we're going to Aragon next and I genuinely believe that the the bike to beat and the rider to beat at Aragon will be Alicia Spigaro um, because of how well he's traditionally went there and, and how much he's looking forward to going to it and actually I think that if Quattararo can't win having someone else end Bagnaya's run of form is probably the best thing that can happen to him I think honestly I expect another point swing Mizano style at Aragon. I would not be surprised at all if Banya wins a fifth straight. But thankfully for Quartararo, that'll only that'll only take him in the vicinity in terms of points, even if Banya does win. There's still a lot of work to do. 30 points sounds not like a lot when there's 25 for win, and I guess it's not, but the way MotoGB history normally is, it's it's a gap that's really hard to overhaul for some reason. Like it's just if you're in a position where you have a 30 points lead, you are scoring consistently enough to where it's really hard to overturn. Um, but I mean, Aragon can also sting a little bit. And Fabio, I think he's rich, reached the acceptance stage of, of his title campaign. Maybe reached it a fair while back, but he's now having to sort of relive it again because it, it once seemed fairly comfortable, but now... The Ducatis are out in full swing in Banya in particularly, and I think there's a maybe something of a realization from Fabio that there's not a ton of difference he personally can make, at least relative to the other Yamahas, obviously. So he's just gonna, you know, he's gonna do the pace he can, he's gonna qualify where he can, he's gonna ride where he can. He's not gonna throw it down the road, I don't think. He's not gonna do another Assen, I'm fairly sure, although we'll see. Um and then the points will shake out how they shake out. And I think if he loses at the end of the season, he'll go. Dowell gave it a gave it a real good shot. And if he wins, he's going to be over the moon. I think he's in a good position mentally, genuinely. Just you know, a good mental position doesn't you know doesn't put you on pole. Doesn't win your races. It helps, but it's not the it's not the horsepower. There's a uh, there's always that wild card factor of a wet race, someone else's accident, all that kind of stuff, which could happen to to Quattararo, and that's the that's the thing that if I in my dreams, if I was in his shoes, that would worry me is having someone else's accident, like we saw at Turn One yesterday in Misano, with three guys going down. So the the only thing I think about that that will probably reassure him is that he's never really had someone else's accident. Uh, it, it, he put, and, and, and that's not, that's not accidental. It's because of where he puts himself. Yeah. You know, he's, he's call it a sixth sense, call it awareness, call it skill, call it whatever you want to call it, call it luck if you want to. Cause at the end of the day, that's something it, it can, you can see it as, but he doesn't get in other people's accidents. Um, you know, the, he, he causes other people's accidents on multiple occasions, but he rarely gets caught up in others. I, I think luck, because I think much of that is just grid position and where you run after lap one. And I think it is it is on the balance of probabilities 
what happened to Banyaya with Nakagami's crash could have easily happened to Fabio, even if Fabio managed to avoid it by getting a really, really good start. But I think I think whatever start weakness Banyaya has had is now basically gone, which is a really, really big, important factor. Banyaya went obviously out of the grid penalty, so he started fifth instead of second, but he was third into turn one. This is a really, really good getaway, and we're not really seeing Fabio get those crazy lightning getaways relative to the Ducatis anymore. So something has changed there. And it's a really big thing because Fabio does not have that many opportunities during a race to pick off a Ducati. And I think he's not, he, he does not put himself in position to be caught up by other people's accidents, but I, I don't think Bagnaia does either. So in that sense, it still might happen to either. And I think, I think that that much is true. I don't think he's thinking about it, but that's, that is a factor to consider, obviously. What do Yamaha got to say about this? What's their vibe? Honestly, radio silence. Um, the amount we hear from Yamaha factory at the minute is minimal. Um, it's sort of very different times whenever you used to be able to sort of grab Lynn Jarvis quite openly and quite easily for a comment. Um, yeah, strangely, they're very, very back foot at the minute. Well, Ducati could wrap up the Constructors' title by the end of the next Grand Prix in Aragon. They need 15 points more uh, than Yamaha in Aragon, and they could take that home, but that's probably going to be a given anyway. They've got an enormous lead of 110 points at the moment, uh, so all going well for them. But, of course, it's all the Riders' Championship. Constructors is great for those in that team uh, selling motorcycles but uh, we the fans we want to see what the riders have uh, have got to say got to do um second place anea bastianini obviously he went for that it wasn't a lunge didn't think it was necessarily the right corner but what do i know watching it on tv uh, on that last lap what had he got to say was he sanguine afterwards nah i think i think it was i think it was perfectly content <laughs> By, by the outcome. Again, this is a man who's won three races this season, who's not not entitled contention, although could have been. Uh, first of all, it was a really nice livery. It's completely unrelated. But it was. It was. Just, yes. It's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous bike. <laughs> it was, but, but just too many special liveries this weekend. Yeah, I guess. It felt but, like there was more special liveries in the grid than normal ones. On, in MotoGP, it was just uh, Grissini and VR46, though, right? Or was it somebody else? Yeah, but then like half the grid had special helmets. Yeah. and Yeah. There was a lot going on with different colors this weekend. Honestly, a little secret. Maybe should hit the cutting room floor. I don't know their regular helmets anyway. Like their bikes are distinct enough. I don't need to memorize what they're wearing on their heads. Like whatever. Anyway, <laughs> that aside. Yeah. Yeah, they're all yeah. a bit messy nowadays. Yeah. yeah. It was it was easier with a Simoncelli, yeah. wasn't it? Ding. That aside, um, <laughs> Bastianini had a really good weekend. He's again, he was again quick over one lap. And also there was the backdrop of, I think, Jorge Martin hitting the sulk mode a little bit. Just not not being quite in the, in the right mindset after... At least that's what... That's what Pramax, uh, one of the Nietos. Which of the Nietos was it? Yeah, Fonzie. Yeah, Fonzie Nieto, basically, who's their sporting director. Basically acknowledged that Jorge's not in the best place mentally after the Ducati decision went against him. But maybe you'll look at an A and he'll see how an A is going now and he'll go, ah, you know what, fair enough. I, I think that's too simple maybe to hope for, but who knows. Yeah, it's an excellent weekend, best possible result. 
Honestly, I think it's better for 2023 Team Harmony that he didn't win. Again, I don't understand why he had the chance to win. And I think if they told him to hold back, he would have. Because I think he's a, a sensible, logical guy, even though they call him the Beast. Um, it's just a very good weekend. And I honestly, I, I keep doing this and it's stupid. But like in every other race, I look at somebody and I'm like, ooh, 2023 title contender. Because that's already happened with Vinales. And I still kind of feel that because Vinales, I think now has basically hit Alicia's level on the Aprilia and still has room to grow because he's not hitting the deck at all. But we'll, we'll touch on that later. But Enea, I think what he does, I mean, the problem is he still has the error in him. And I'm not sure how permanent the qualifying switch is, but he is absolutely Terminator-like, super reliable in getting really good in second parts of the race. He was, again, just... Even without the tire, the Mizano race wasn't a big tire drop-off race. And he was once again, head and shoulders, the quickest guy in the second half. Like if, if he could find a way past Bagnaia, he was gone up the, up the road. We could see that on, on the opening lap when he made the early mistake, he dropped four tenths back. And in like two or three corners, those four tenths were gone. He had absurd amounts of pace. I think that can win you a championship. And I think it can win you a championship as early as 2023 if things go right. Yeah, I, I, just before we started recording the podcast, I filed my writer ratings for the week, and I don't know if Val's had a chance to pick it up and look at it yet, but he might as well have been quoting word for word about what I just wrote about uh, Bastianini. That was the smartest decision he could have made for his future, because if there were any doubts whatsoever within Bologna or within Jorge Martin's camp about whether or not they made the right choice for next year. Um, I think he silenced them by being that fast, but also by being that little bit careful around Bagnaia in the closing stages of the race and, and you know, not doing anything totally stupid. Like, let's not forget, Martin did do to Jack Miller uh, at the last round of the Red Bull Ring. So, yeah, I think completely sensible. Um, his pace was phenomenal. He did he did the fastest lap of the race on the last lap, quicker than the pole position time after having lost about four tenths to that huge moment. On twenty eight lap old toss. Exactly. I mean Exactly. His ability to nurse tires is just unlike anything we've ever seen before. And in a championship where, you know, nursing tires is going to be increasingly important at least for 2023, because we're not going to see less aerodynamics or less ride height devices in 2023, but we do have another year of the same Michelin tire. Um, I think tire conservation next year will be even more important than it has been. And there is a very, very real chance that he can be a title contender, which would um, really, really upset Bagnaia. But there you go. Such a minor thing, but I, I can't wait to see him in Ducati Red now. And like, especially after this race, for some reason, I was so excited watching Bastianini's pace that it just, it creates this tantalizing image of his number on the red bike. And I don't, it's just something super exciting about it, which is always my favorite part of the, of the off season anyway, of the, of the testing is just, I just love seeing the new combination of numbers on new bikes, riders in new race suits. And he's, he's earned it. And he's earned it again today, uh, yesterday. Yeah. Oh, today. Oh, and we got another new rider as well next year, Mark Marquez. 
Because we haven't seen him for so long, we've forgotten about him. You know, I've seen I've seen the '93 on the Repsol Honda a few times. Yeah, but so I think the novelty value isn't quite there. It's it's as if he's never been around. Because if you put him in the mix, he won here last year. If you put him in the mix, whoa, that's going to be cool. The good thing about the other side of the garage is that we've also seen a '93 and a Repsol Honda upside down so many times that we've practically seen Juan Mir's '36 on one. (laughs) <laughs> uh, on that bombshell did you come up with that one on the spot really yeah, that's, thanks. that's pretty impressive <laughs> looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 u.s based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Jack Miller started from pole position at Misano, led the Grand Prix, but dropped it. There was a, a run of them going down the road. Uh, which wasn't good, but Zeki went down the road. So did De G went down the road. It was all a bit, oh, the Ducati's all in trouble here. But, well, what to say about Miller? What did he have to say about himself? Jack Miller doing Jack Miller things, isn't it? I mean, he is undoubtedly fast. He is undoubtedly talented. And he is undoubtedly one of the most inconsistent riders in the grid who has a penchant for doing stuff like this. And yeah, disappointed, but not surprised by that. Um, and and he's pretty much got to the point in the season now where he kind of says, well, you know, these things happen as well. He, he wasn't really too upset by the fact that it had happened, which is kind of telling about quite a few things. Um, I think he's kind of made his peace with the fact that he won't be a Ducati rider next year. Uh, I've heard a few stories. I've seen a few things that, you know, that, that kind of imply that that amazing relationship that has built up over the last few years, that's kind of on the way out now. Um, and, and yeah, as a result, I think maybe the, the commitment, the motivation is just not what it was. And that was evidenced in his reaction. Yeah. It's sorry. If I could just jump in, you know, that, that's very true. Ultimately, as our colleagues used the same expression on our F1 podcasts with the race, you know, he's a Ducati reject. And unfortunately, that's the cold light of day. And that's going to affect you north of the eyebrows as well as um, on the bike. Val? He'll not admit that publicly. Publicly, he'll say he made his decision. He, he, was, he jumped before he was pushed. He jumped the KTM, but he was going to get pushed. And he knows it and everybody else knows it. And... What I want to say is, I do think, honestly, even including this crash, because like whatever things happen, and even including the fact that, well, no, let's let's say, even including this crash, Miller has been pretty good recently. He really has. But I'm I'm really tired of the narrative that like he found something in the Barcelona test, and since then he's like 
the Ducati benchmark or like proving Ducati wrong about lining up Bastianini to replace him? Absolutely not. Clearly, absolutely not. Because in like none of those races since have been wins. All of those races since weren't even really team orders because Pecco has reliably outperformed him as he has done since they were teammates in the Ducati factory team. So nothing has changed there. And even after crashing out of this race, Miller basically admitted that he saw Bagna and Bastianini's pace and was like, not, not sure I could have done that. Which is fair enough. You know, again, Pecco's in, in the form of his life. Miller probably isn't quite. Pecco's just probably a better fit for that Ducati than Miller. I don't... Again, it's just... It's not me being disappointed with Miller because we know what Jack Miller on a Ducati is at this point. And I think we're interested to find out whether Jack Miller on a KTM is a different proposition. But it's it's me just sort of pushing back against the the narrative that after Ducati chose somebody else in front of him, he suddenly he suddenly shown it why it shouldn't have replaced him. Maybe for Team Harmony purposes, he should have stayed. If you're that sold on making Banya your number one, maybe that. But in terms of pure performance, you saw it again. Enea Bastianini is your guy. And if Enea Bastianini wasn't around, honestly, I'd still pick Jorge Martin. So because he's younger, probably got more upside. Yeah, there you go. So the the exact point I was going to make, Jack Miller has done a lot in the last few rounds to prove that he is exactly the person that Chicati should have signed for next year if you believe that Peko Bagnaia is your all-in title contender and you wanted Danny Pedroza to be his tail gunner. But if you believe that you potentially have a bigger talent than Bagnaia in the form of Bastianini and or Martin, then moving Miller on to put one of those into the factory colours was the only move they could have done. And I think that Bastianini proved yesterday that he is in fact that guy. So yeah, question answered. I'm I'm not even sure. Like I wouldn't even say bigger talent as much as talent in the same range to where you improve your title chances by having both of them in the mix. That's how I would put it. Like for for Honda, it doesn't matter who's next to Mark Marquez. Whoever you add, it's all of your title chances depend on Mark anyway. It's just Mark. Mark's going to destroy whoever else is next to him. Mark's going to ride that bike. Nobody else is going to do it. For Ducati, it makes a lot of sense to stack your factory lineup with people who can win the title right now because of just how the bike is and who the guys you have are. And Jack Miller wasn't going to win a title for Ducati. And Ebastinini might. Really might. Go back 10 years. Um... Repsol Honda had Casey Stoner and Danny Pedroza. Casey Stoner was the number one rider. Danny Pedroza was the teammate. But at the other, uh, you know, the, the down the pit lane, monster movie star Yamaha, as it was at the time, had Valentino Rossi and Jorge Lorenzo, and both of them could win titles. Ducati have went for that option. Yeah. They've went for the two title contenders option because they can. Of course you would. And, and you know, that has been kind of a trademark Ducati thing for a while now where they, they're kind of always hedging their bets. That's why there's part of the reason why there's eight bikes in the grid. And with what we've seen from Marquez crashing, you can't put all your eggs in one basket, uh, particularly motorcycle racing. You can Absolutely. a bit more on four wheels, you know, uh, a Lewis and a Bottas, but, uh, you know, a Max or a, or a, or a, or a Perez. But, yeah, uh, you, yeah. You're, you're, you're spot on about, about hedging their bets. And they need to win a flipping title, for crying out loud. Yeah. They've won one in 20 years. 
And let's not forget that Ducati have been there and done that and tried the other option. Quite. They, they've tried. They've tried the big name, and it hasn't worked for a variety of reasons, some of which are their own fault. Um, but you know, mm. so why not try something new? Yes, uh, I mean, poor old Casey. Had he not been ill, then he would have won three with them, wouldn't he? Um, if if Domenicali hadn't sacked Jorge Lorenzo, he would probably have won one or two for them. One or two, yeah, yeah. And the fairy tale would have been uh, would have been complete. Uh, talking about a bit of a fairy tale. Uh, wasn't a fan at the beginning of the year, wasn't a fan of what he did in the middle of last year. But here we are now, 12 months after Vinales jumped on an Aprilia, ironically at Mizano for a test session. Um, he's doing well. I doff my cap. I doff my cap. Honestly, I'm, first of all, I think by now with this race, Maverick Vinales is conclusively, by a huge margin, the best teammate at Aprilia Alessia Spargara has ever had, which 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 means that the gamble has paid off, whatever happens from yep. here. Well done. Success. I think we can we, we he he is the best teammate that Alessia Spargaro has ever had. Well yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean for the on the second occasion, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> um it doesn't surprise me. Honestly, it really it really does not surprise me because I still remember the Maverick Vinales from Suzuki and I still remember the Maverick Vinales from the first races at Yamaha. He is a supremely talented rider. He is absolutely a world champion Thailand. I, I do not have much in the way of doubt to that. Um, it's just the other stuff. And we know about the other stuff. And I think that other stuff hasn't been properly tested at Aprilia yet. Because right now, he's still playing with house money. There's still not a lot at stake. He's not, he's not in the title contention. He'll begin next season with sort of an outside chance, I suspect. And that's and that's when we'll know. And that's what we'll, you know, that's he'll need to deliver a consistent season of good results, and we'll have to see how that works. Um, but this is not surprising because he is really good. And he has been really good for his whole career. We have known since Moto Three through Moto Two. We have always known that Maverick Vinales is super super talented. So, yeah, that team have built a structure that he needed. And that is exactly the difference. Um, obviously, it helps that the bike's really, really good. But I think if he had what he has around him right now, around him in any other team or on any other bike in the championship, including a Yamaha, he'd be delivering these same results. Um, you know, it is like it's it's a super old, overused cliche that a happy rider is a fast rider, and it's not true because some riders are faster when they're angry. Uh, but Maverick is one who needs things to be just right, the people around him to know when he needs a cuddle and an arm around his shoulder, and he repays them by being rapid. And and honestly, this weekend, this weekend even compared to where we've seen him previously, this weekend felt like a change because he is so happy, so confident, so upbeat, so friendly. You can just tell that he's like in the best place mentally that he's been in in the time that I've worked with him in this championship and, and I've been working with him since his second year at Suzuki. Um, it's just right right now. And uh, I don't know where the... I don't know where the combination of that is, but I genuinely believe that if the bike remains as good next year, it's title contention. You've got to look at it from his point of view as well, which is you got fired from Yamaha because it had all gone sour. You went home, you've got a kid, a baby mm. in arms, and somebody rings you up and says, do you want to ride this? And then he says, I kind of got nothing to lose. Yes. 
I'll just see how I go. I can't go home and not ride something. This'll not this'll do. That's a that's the wrong expression from me, but this is the best option I've got. Okay, right. So you get to Qatar and you do it. Oh, hang on a minute. My mate my mate on the other side of the garage just won a race. <laughs> um I'm all I've got to do is win a race. I, I suspect he's they are all looking at just win a race, just win a race. And then if you win two or three, then a championship will come. I see what you're saying, Val, about a championship contender, but I don't think they need to think like that. They're not the big animal that is a corporation at the moment. I think that they're still doing that that family spirit of winning a winning a race by race. So so Maverick didn't think like that when he was leaving. So the way you put it, I think that the situation there is is a little bit different in that he didn't get fired and then took what he had. He was preparing to take what was available and then got himself fired to take it. And it was a, you know it was a it was a worse bike at that point in time. But it was already sort of the relationship with Yamaha and the time at Yamaha had reached a point where anything else was going to do. And the Aprilia has turned out not to just be anything else. It has turned out, turned out to be a really good team and a really good bike. I think he was not obviously not thinking world championship at the point of his departure from Yamaha, but. This is a rider who's too talented and has had too much success not to be thinking about it soon enough. Again, this is so he has a Moto Three title, right, Simon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he has a Moto Three title. He was in the Moto Two mix. He won a race on the Suzuki. He started seasons with Yamaha as title favorite, and he won his first race with Yamaha. He will not be content with being just there and thereabout and picking out some silverware for too long because he is. He has had too much success in his career already for that. Now, it would be a huge milestone to win with Aprilia because I think it would make him the only rider in the MotoGP era to win with three bikes, which would be nothing to scoff at. That would be spectacular. But he'll be, you know, again, I think this will be the big test. He'll be having title aspirations sooner than later. And Aprilia will have to support that. And I think they will. The only thing I'm not sure of is how much the option of an Aprilia being there uh, affected the the Maverick sort of Yamaha meltdown because I think he was on a path to destruction, Absolutely. self-destruction anyway. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, maybe it sped it up a little bit, but I don't think there's any world with any available option where Maverick Vinales would have been a Yamaha rider this year. He he might have seen out he might have seen out to the end of last year, but I don't think he would have been there this year in any way, shape, or form if it meant going back to Moto Two, because it was just like it was just so toxic that that is just how bad it had become, and they'd allowed it to become. Whoever you know, no blame on anyone because I don't think it was any one person's fault, but. You know, we saw a little bit. This is pretty much the only interesting thing we saw in the documentary. Let's be honest, that we didn't already know. We saw a little bit of in behind the scenes snippets. Uh, we didn't learn much from the documentary. It was entertaining, yeah, okay, but we didn't yeah. learn uh, much. From Simon's it. responding apart to me from a, a face. just how, yeah. yeah, a very, yeah, a very yeah. suppressed face there. Val was making. Um, Val, the last defender of MotoGP Unlimited, still good. But, just because uh, they botched the launch, I'm not going to turn on the product. <laughs> I. <laughs> <laughs> but we but we didn't learn an awful lot from it apart from just how nasty things had become in that garage. And um yeah, for better or worse. For better for everyone, yeah. let's oh, be yeah. honest. There, there's no way in which it wasn't better yeah. for everyone. That did end and, and he did find a new home, but yeah, it would have ended in any way. 
if Maverick reaches more success with the Aprilia soon, I think it'll be it'll be grounds for his Yamaha stint to be reevaluated in more depth because obviously. Ultimately, I think PR-wise, he left it as the bad guy because he had an almighty strop. And and yeah, it's Maverick. That'll happen. And honestly, his whole Yamaha career has been sort of a mixture of being happy and optimistic for very little reason and then being immediately grumpy and going like that. Um, but clearly, something there happened where maybe they didn't fully bet on him soon enough while they still have Rossi. I don't know. And then Fabio came in and was just better right away. So the time that Maverick was going to have as Yamaha undisputed top dog just vanished between those two eras. And that probably was the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the relationship. But I still think he might have been in it this this season just because during Yamaha years, Maverick Vinales proved extremely adept at talking himself into Yamaha and then regretting it two or three months later. We know that there's real change going on at Yamaha at the minute. There's, you know, new blood coming in. There's European talent coming into the engineering department, stuff like that. You do have to wonder if a certain amount of that is because of the the sort of the introspection that has followed Maverick's departure. Because they've got to look at what he did on their bike, look at what he's doing in an Aprilia, and think, man, we like we did screw up here in some way, shape, or form. We did screw up. Um, and I think Lynn Jarvis is, is too intelligent to not see that. I wouldn't say they screwed up because you, you, you did. You st- no, but they did. They, they destroyed a writer. Well, they didn't mentally. destroy the other bloke. No, I know. I know. But they're getting there right now. <laughs> no, yeah. The, the, you know, he's, he's conceded 60 points in four races. Yeah. That, yeah. But this time last year, we're talking about, they didn't yeah. destroy the other bloke. No, I know. He's about I know. to win a world championship. And they didn't destroy VR. And Lynn Jarvis but, was the only person in the world to sign VR twice. But Valentino Rossi is a very different character. And Jorge Lorenzo yeah. is a very different character from Maverick Vinales. And if you have a team that can only. Let, allow one type of personality to thrive, then you're you're backing yourself into a corner. Yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say screwed up, I guess, but I didn't maximize them. I think it's certainly there's like no no question about it. Clearly, they did not. But, yeah, good old Vinales. He's got form because, as I said last time, he he did he did he did he did leave Malaysia on a motor three yeah, bike because he didn't feel as if he had the right breakfast, and he went home and he didn't race. <laughs> but if anything, that that should have been a a warning flight to Yamaha that he did have to be treated yeah, carefully. Yeah, but you take a risk. You take a punt, don't you? Because they're yeah, all yeah, of they're you do. riders. But you also, you also pay attention to what's going on yeah. in the box. Riders, they're, they're all all over the place. They're all over the place. And when it works, my goodness me, it doesn't half work. Um, just to, talking about garage atmosphere, like we were touching on with, with Aprilia, you then go to the, the Mooney VR46 Ducati squad. You know, I look at that as a... The management of which are a group of guys who've learnt MotoGP by being there, by being around Valentino, Valentino being Valentino, and Luca Marini gets his second, fourth position on the trot, knocking on the door of a podium. He was, um, isn't that brilliant? Isn't that the isn't that the best underdog story of Misano? It, it absolutely is. I I genuinely love to see Luca Marini doing well for the same reason that I enjoy seeing Alex Marquez doing well, because they're some they're they're both guys who have continually for their entire career been told you're only here because of who your brother is, 
and it's really nice to see them delivering the goods on their own. Um, you know, Alex Marquez was top Honda in Sunday's race as well. The guy that they've sacked, who's going to go to Ducati next year, and I think be a lot faster. Um, and and Luca is just building and building and chipping away and chipping away. And debut podium is weeks away because it, you can't spend that long at that sharp end of races without it happening eventually through circumstance or whatever. And yeah, it's just, it's great to see him do so well. It was a horrendously disappointing day for Marco Bezzecchi, but he's young and, you know, inexperienced to an extent. And he made a rookie mistake of getting sucked into a corner too fast in the slipstream of Vinales' bike and break too late and fell off. But it's his rookie year and you do stupid stuff like that and you learn from it. So all in all, that is, absolutely a team on the rise they're the only team that haven't confirmed riders for next year but let's be honest they're both staying because they both absolutely deserve to stay first corner at Mizano was another bit of a mishmash Johan Zarco Michele Pirro was a wild card all going down with Paul Espargaro the two Ducatis and the Repsol Honda going down the road I mean the whole Repsol Honda thing is just the whole Honda thing just goes from bad to worse. Simon, you've already mentioned that Alex Marquez on the LCR Honda was the top finisher in 10th position. Mark Marquez was there in the garage, just as he was last time out in Austria. I don't quite know what he could do, what he could say, but uh, what are they going to do? <laughs> well, we, we've we've got a little bit of a, a rumour, thanks to German colleagues at Speedweek, about what they're going to do. Um, there's obviously two really important days of testing coming up on Tuesday and Wednesday at Mizano. It's going to be debut 2023 bikes for at least two manufacturers, Yamaha and Honda. Uh, but according to Speedwick, the, the, you know, uh, veteran that is Gunther Wiesinger, um, HRC have a new swinging arm come that wasn't built by HRC, that comes from Calix, Moto 2 God chassis manufacturers. And I, Toby, you're maybe better qualified than me. I can't remember a Japanese manufacturer ever bolting such a significant part into their bike from a European company, let alone one that they didn't build themselves. It just doesn't happen. It just does not happen. Yeah, and I suppose, no, I can't think off the top of my head, but it's all about pride, isn't it? It's all about, that's that's the yeah. Japanese ethos is, it's all about pride. Now, we know that the cylinder head of the Yamaha probably comes from St. James Mill Road in Northamptonshire, UK. Look it up. Uh, probably, whether or not it still does. Now, Simon, you've mentioned already in podcasts past that there's a bit more of a European swing to the Yamaha effort at the moment. That might be why they're a bit quiet and they're changing things and such like. Um, but for HRC, the mighty HRC, in the week of their 40th anniversary since Aguma-san started them, uh, putting in a Calex uh, rear end. Um, needs must. It's prototype racing. Purpose of the exercise, win the bloody race. And when you're in a team, you kind of don't care how you do it. And maybe the battle that somebody like Lynn Jarvis has had to do at Yamaha is to convince the Japanese to use a bit more European uh, external suppliers, whether or not they be on aero or carbon or... or block whatever um you just need to win the race you know we all know that 
some of the bikes of they don't all make them in one place all of the, the aprilia is not all made in Nuali. all of the ktm is not all made in matacoffin um you've just got to win the race and if that's what hrc have got to do before this two-day test they've got to do it and, and here's the thing whenever mark marquez came to the red bow ring and spoke to the media uh, one of the things that actually the thing that I think he was strongest on was how HRC need to ditch some of the Japanese mentality and become more European in terms of team concept. And if you were HRC and you really, really wanted Mark Marquez to believe in the project again after all of the complications and drama and pain that he's went through since July 2020, you'd, you'd get Alex to build your swing arm just to prove that point to him. If you if you genuinely wanted to prove change, that's how you do it. It doesn't matter if it's crap. It would be it it, it it would be worth it for the confidence vote that it would give him in in the fact that you're listening to him. You know what, uh, Marcus saying that was was a thing and obviously the most important. But I was also a little bit flabbergasted to hear Takanakagami, the Japanese yeah. Honda rider, saying basically, well, not quite the same thing, but saying that there's a communication shortfalls that the Japanese test team is testing some things and we don't we don't hear about him the test team is running something we don't know Taka was honestly almost more scathing about it than Mark and that's a guy who owes his whole career to Honda like all of it so obviously Paul this weekend uh started well then ended up nowhere uh just sort of his post sacking Honda tenure reminds you of the the final half year of Jorge Lorenzo's career except there's no huge injury to link it to so and it sounds like he's trying he really does make it sound like he's really trying and just maybe there's that one or two tents that are now gone because of because there's no future with Honda but that doesn't explain all the other tents and he was also really scathing after just throughout the weekend and after the race and after he was taken yeah. out, he was less annoyed at Brad Binder for toggling the whole crash, you know, for colliding with Zarco and then Zarco going into Michele Piro and Espargo and those three races ending. Less annoyed at that than annoyed at being in that part of the grid and saying that Honda isn't working hard enough. That's basically verbatim. Honda isn't bringing enough new parts. Which, you know, it's easier to say if you're leaving at the end of the year, but it's... I, it's telling that nobody is happy. Alex Marquez maybe is happy, but then that also tells you something. The guy crashed early on in Q1 and he still qualified in races at top Honda. And that's Alex Marquez, who has not had much success on that bike at all. Nothing is going well. So yeah, might as well have Calix build a swing arm. I don't know, a new hospitality, a new robot rider, whatever. Coffee machine. Yeah. And in, in a world where... Taka's complaints in particular were about the lack of communication between the Japanese test team and the European race team. Um, and a little bit about the, you know, how COVID is still causing some delays in getting stuff to them. What better way to speed up development than to hire a German company to work with your German test rider who is absolutely beloved by your race team? To, uh, to build new parts for you in a factory that's a four or five hour drive away from Mizano. Um, you know, Mark Marquez has, has kind of let it slip a little bit recently that the person that seemingly he talks to most 
in the whole Honda setup at the minute after his crew chief, Santi Hernandez, is Stefan Bradl. Yeah. Um, we went to Paul's media debrief the other day and Stefan and him were sitting in a sofa together while they did each other's media debriefs. And uh, Steph, we asked Stefan how his day was and he kind of deadpanned, well, my day was useless because I spent it all stuck behind slow Paulus Bagaro. And Paul agreed with him and laughed. That's the <coughs> level of relationship that those two have at the minute. So, so he is an absolute, you know, and then Paul in seriousness shortly afterwards, um, gave kind of a, a very eloquent and passionate defense of how he believes Honda don't appreciate Stefan Bradle enough for what he is. Um, so just l- bringing those elements closer together seems like a very, very smart strategy at the minute. I think it would be cool to go 10 years back, 11 years back, and look at the two Moto2 title rivals and say, okay, the champion is going to be the vice champion's favorite hand-picked test rider. They're going to be in it completely together. It's fun how motorcycle racing changes over years. (laughs) Uh, uh, And coming full circle, what was the chassis that Stefan Bradl took to the Moto2 World Championship in 2011? A Calyx. I know it's a long time ago and they've built 300,000 different iterations because they churn them out, but uh, but I may well jest, but uh, it's prototype racing and there's no limit on how many swing arms you can bring to a racetrack. Other Simon? There are not. And just on a, on a complete aside note, just to show how good they are, uh, Alonso Lopez won the Moto2 race for speed up on Sunday. That's the first time that... A Calyx hasn't won a Moto2 race since Phillip Island 2019 in the hands of Miguel Oliveira on a KTM. Crack on. It's also speed-ups. It's the first time speed-up has won a race since Fabio Quattararo won a race for them, which is wild. Are you sure about Miguel Oliveira? Wasn't it, shouldn't it be Brad Binder? Because Binder stayed on the KTM a year after that and won races on the oh. KTM. Uh, potentially it was. Oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry, it was Binder. Yeah. But it was Phillip Island 19. Yeah, 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 yeah sorry. Yeah. But yeah. Two years. I'm also going to be. I'm, I'm going to be the worst person now and say Valencia 19. No, it <laughs> was Philip Island. Fun. I did check that. I'm. I'm looking at his record right now. It is absolutely Valencia. It is what? the final race of this. We checked. The, okay. Okay, we checked this. So we obviously Next. did a very good job of it. Right. Okay, you two back in your boxes. Um, uh, the big series. Be very in- <laughs> bloody internet. Um, be very interesting to see how this test goes. Uh, are you going to be around, or is it one of those non-journo tests? No, it is a full official test, so we're here. We're here in force. Um, I'm Good. parked on the beach in Catolica right now, because today's a day off, um, because most of the paddock have quite a hangover from a rather boisterous Andrea De Vizioso leaving party last night. Isn't that the best lead into the next subject? Go on, then. What was it like? Uh, the last time I saw Andrea De Vizioso, he wasn't wearing a shirt anymore because it had been ripped off him. So uh, take for that what you will. <laughs> no, genuinely, it was good. Uh, last night, we, it was great to see how many of his rivals turned out to say thanks very much for all the good fun. Uh, Michele Pirro has just had a baby and every, you know should have rushed home in theory. Had a baby and a huge crash yesterday. And he still turned up for a few drinks at Dovey last night. You know? long-time Ducati compatriots. So, yeah, um, good to see Dovi getting the plaudits that he deserved as he bowed out of the championship after just the most remarkably incredible career turnaround and a stellar last few years. Um, 
and honestly, more important than anything else, uh, uh, just this role that he has absolutely stepped into as the wise old man of the paddock. You know, he is our sort of philosopher racer. He's super intelligent. He is just so intelligent. Um, and he's, he's kind of all of his media debriefs or weekend have barely touched upon his on track performance. I'd have just diverged into like philosophical ramblings about the state of MotoGP and life and racing and cool anecdotes and when he first turned up. And, you know, he, he told us a great story about how, uh, we got onto the subject of, of how the current grid compares to when he first turned up. And he told us about how he missed the flight to his first ever race as a full-time rider in Suzuka because he'd never got an international flight before, didn't know what to do in the airport. And he turned up and he was terrified and four seconds off the pace. And now kids turn up and they've already been racing at like quasi-world championship level for six years and they can podium in their first weekend. And, you know, he's just really intelligent stuff like that that no one else really reads into too much. So we're going to miss him. Made his debut back in 2001. That seems like just eons ago the uh the i i retweeted over the weekend a, a thread from dr martin rains who did one of his six degrees of separation and there are literally five riders separating him from the first ever grand prix that's how long he's been around feels like i know there was a lot with with rossi bowing out and obviously for obvious reasons but it, it does feel like it's it's dovey leaving in particular that sort of closes off that era just closes the door on it um He's had a remarkable career and I, you know, you, you mentioned how intelligent he is and that certainly has always been my impression as well. I remember the Gigi Deligna quote that he's on the bike, he's too thoughtful, so I guess t- too intelligent, which m- not instinctive enough, which maybe is partly true. But I think the fun part about it is I do not for a second believe he would have won 15 races if he was not as smart in the bike as he was. I think his wins came from being a very, very clever in MotoGP races. And I think that also what reflects that is, and it's unthinkable for modern MotoGP because in modern MotoGP, your career is over basically at 28. But for in his case, he won one race before turning 30 and then 14 after that, which that basically, that sums up Dovi and Dovi's MotoGP career for you, I think. The, the thing that sums up Dovi's MotoGP career for me is the two last corner victories at the Red Bull Ring. against Mark Marquez in 17 and 19 because the first year he let in and let Mark make a move on him that he knew Mark wouldn't be able to stick and then made it work and then the second time he basically pulled the move that Mark wasn't able to make stick but it set it up better and it did work and and being that clever and that adaptable that's kind of Dovey in a nutshell for me um, therefore, if we take him out of the grid at Misano, the most experienced, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, MotoGP rider is, is Alicia Spargaro, but not for long because Cal's coming back. Yeah. To replace. Yeah. Thankfully, the fact that Cal sends out, sits at the rest of this or does the rest of the season for Dolby means that I get until the end of the season before I become older than the oldest rider in the grid. I can't even compute that. Never mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is painful. I mean, Simon is old, so that makes sense to me. The problem is that I, I'm also <laughs> No, I'm great. I'm, I'm also not old. honestly not that far off. I'm 28 and I'm not that far off. I'm already, w- I, I would be well above average for MotoGP <laughs> if I had talent. <laughs> 
the 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 after if if we take Cal out of the mix as a replacement, Alicia Pagaro is now the oldest sort yeah. of full time rider in the grid. And the next one is Mark Marquez. Oh, <laughs> Zarco, Zarco. Oh yeah, sorry, yeah. Zarco fits in between. Yeah. But yeah. then Mark, there's only there's only two full time riders now over thirty. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up Wikipedia again and annoyingly say, all right, let's say maybe Taka drops off next year, but Paul stays and he's over thirty. Let's worry about that when we get so, to next year. <laughs> uh, okay. We have to be statistically accurate. This is the most statistically accurate yes. podcast in And it's early September, internet. and we've got a long way to go to next year. What had Remy Gardner got to say? There was all sorts of uh, moments, clenched teeth moments, where they're not in the press office and around the paddock, Simon? I wouldn't say clenched teeth. I'd say close to tears. Um, KTM have broken that boy um they have chewed him up and spat him out um he came to us on thursday he admitted that they told him on saturday afternoon after qualifying in the red bow ring that he was out um he told us that that was contrary to what they'd led him to believe they'd told him that it was because he wasn't professional enough um ktm then went into a bit of a weird no comment mode for 36 hours before finally Pitt Byer spoke to MotoGP TV and, and basically denied most of what Remy told us um, which I've I've seen things that I don't want to straight up use the word liar but I've seen things that very strongly backs what Remy has said and contradicts what Pitt said Um uh, and the end result is that they now have a rider who doesn't want to even look at a motorbike, let alone ride theirs, who has no idea what his future holds, um, who has no chance of being on a MotoGP grid next year, um, despite potentially having had a few offers earlier in the year. Um, we knew that KTM play hardball on contracts. We know that their contracts are incredibly restrictive things. Um I spoke at uh, the weekend with Raslan Rosali, who admitted that essentially his top three picks for next season were all KTM riders in the shape of Miguel Oliveira, Raul Fernandez, and Remy Gardner, and that the process of negotiating those guys into an Aprilia contract with the RNF team has just been painful. Um, and yeah, basically they've, they've, used and abused Remy, I think is an unfair comment to make. They're probably going to drop Augusto Fernandez into that seat next year. But there is a very, very real question mark for me about what damage this has done to KTM's long-term prospects with some of their young talent, because you have to think that they're putting Augusto Fernandez in there with the intention of only keeping him for one year, knowing that they have Pedro Acosta waiting in the wings. But Pedro Acosta's best friend in the paddock is Remy Gardner. So... How does all this play out for KTM? Not well. I com- I completely forgot about the Acosta Gardner link, and now uh, wow! Now that you've reminded me, my, my eyebrows have gone basically into space at this point. Ooh! Also, you've said I've seen things twice, and both times I expected you to go into the the Blade Runner monologue. Anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, I think what what surprised me the most about what KTM said about Remy and what like what didn't wash with me the most isn't the denial of the you're not professional enough thing because it's a he said she said in a way a little bit even if there's 
some evidence that one party is is more correct than the other. But it's the the part that really made me feel they don't have much of a leg to stand on is I think when Pitt Byer said that when we didn't extend his option in July, when he didn't pick it up, he should have known. It's not not how that works. Well, again, it's such a such a awful corporate way to look at it. There's communication between rider and team. If it's just that, if it's how that works at over at KTM, then that's a that's a huge problem. If 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 you're if you're expecting your riders to go off purely contractual and make all their decisions at purely contractual, then they're going to be leaving you because this is that's just I don't know. I really didn't like that, and I didn't really understand that. And I think it maybe was a something of a half baked excuse. I'm not really trying to even go into whether performance wise they were right or wrong to drop Remy. Like whatever. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Again, I like Augusto Fernandez. I'm interested to see what he does on the RC16. But clearly, I think it's really fair to say that they have not handled this situation well. They have they have done him wrong. It's uh, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. Um, Juan Mir unable to ride, so it was Kazuki Watanabe who stood in for the 2020 World Champion at Suzuki. Uh, bless him. He was filling a ride. He was filling a space, but quite a dude. Yeah. Um, it will come as absolutely no surprise. Well, the fact that you've just, just, just described him as what a dude, um, it'll come as absolutely no surprise to British listeners to discover that his manager is none other than Yuki Kagiyama, <laughs> the biggest dude in the history of Japanese motorcycle racing. Um, uh, so I, I've briefly sort of interacted with Kazuki before in the past at Suzuka because he's he's always been on the Suzuki Yoshimura Suzuki team there. Um, knew a little bit about him, knew that he spoke excellent English, and he turned up this weekend. And let's put it this way: it went from Suzuki's press officers texting us on Thursday to say, "Look, is anyone interested in in actually like doing a media debrief with him?" To Sunday being like, "Kazuki will be in the media center at this time for his debrief, and we expect to see you all there," because he just he was brilliant. Um, you know, he, he admitted rather. Quite surprisingly, actually, for a Japanese writer, that the reason he got the right is because he got in touch with Suzuki and said, give us a go, give us a go. Oh, really? And they let him. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, he described himself as a country boy in a big city arriving in the MotoGP paddock. Um, I've spoken quite a bit this weekend to Juan Mir's crew chief, Frankie Carchetti, uh, who's been working with him. And he says they've just, they've just spent all of their time laughing because they've had no pressure. Yeah. They've had no expectations. They didn't know if he was going to manage to qualify, which he did in the end. Um, and it's just been fun. And and it, the whole thing culminated in this uh, bizarre ending where he... <laughs> Uh, so th there's an argument here. Dorner claiming one thing and Suzuki claiming the information they've been given from Murta says the other. But essentially the claim from the team is that he was given a long lap penalty equivalent three second uh, subtraction from his race time at the last lap for exceeding track limits when he sat up to let the leaders through. Ah. Uh. Um, which... Uh, Frankie Carchetti said, he said it's, it's been a very, very long time inside the Suzuki garage since he's seen people crying with laughter. 
Um, but it very much sounded like just the kick that they needed after a really tough year uh, because they had a lot of fun with him. Dorna, Dorna initially claimed that he'd exceeded track limits on the penultimate lap and that they'd only announced it afterwards. Then I pointed out that the race analysis timesheet showed that he'd exceeded track limits for the fourth time on the penultimate lap, not the fifth time. And then they changed the story that he'd exceeded track limits on the corner before the corner where he sat up to let the leaders through. Confused? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, I'm not going to bash the stewards, but with but some of the decisions, with, with some of the decisions we've seen this year, the fact that it's not incredulous that they would give someone a penalty for doing that says a lot. If only there was some sort of way to, I don't know, put a document out that explains the exact offense, pinpoints the time, the corner. Unfortunately, such technology has not been invented. It, it, it made me laugh this weekend that uh, there was two riders sanctioned, one in Moto3 and one in Moto2, for the same offense, knocking someone off. In Moto3, it was, uh, apologies, I can't remember his name. The guy that's replacing, uh, that's in his injury replacement at Avintia, who knocked off Ayumi Sasaki. Um, he got a long lap penalty for the next race in Aragon, but Senna Agulas, who's replacing Sam Lowe's at Aragon, got a long lap penalty for the next race he will complete because Sam's expected to come back next weekend. So it's like, you, you, you can't, specify for one and not the other come on guys you know that reminds me you know that jensen button still has a in f1 still has a grid penalty hanging over him for when he comes back so does hector barbara that's (laughs) (laughs) have they lost that have they lost that piece of paper that hard drive has seized (laughs) which one which one do you think will make a return first (laughs) yeah (laughs) hector barbara actually Uh, he's going to ride the Suzuki next weekend. No, he's not. I'm, I'm making it, that it, up. It, as long as it's the bloke that returns who did that Catalan race on an Avintia CRT bike. Marat, Javier Delamore. You've got it. You've got it. Bloke in back of garage showing guests around. Have you got your leathers? Scores points on Sunday. I mean... Well, so next weekend Next weekend is the Baldor 24-hour endurance race and uh, Kazuki Watanabe is riding at that. Um, in his role as, as Yoshimura Sert rider. So I am all up for putting Yuki Kagiyama out on the MotoGP bike of mere stone not fit. Or Sylvan. Sylvan's still broken. Still broken. Screw Look, it. Let's put Yuki Kagiyama on again, it. Why I'm, not? I'm going to say this again. I'm going to say this again. Mir should sit out the rest of the season because there's no point to any of this. And they should just rotate that bike between various interested parties. Give Danilo a go after all, since it fell through yeah. for Mizano. Uh, what, a, what a hoot in that garage Kevin that would Schwartz, be Kevin yeah. what a Kevin, Kevin Schwartz Lucanelli yeah just get the leathers made I tweeted oh, that didn't I? I said just get the leathers made do a photo call on the Thursday Kevin <laughs> would be game for it he would he very much would be get Loris in get El Panat back on the case like they're they're a monster sponsored team get on the get on the phone to Lewis hey Lewis Lewis Hamilton from Formula One <laughs> on a Duma Got got a good bike going. Anyway, 
this is the kind of thing that you need as listeners to send in your your questions to us at podcasts at the dash race.com uh, send in your your questions to that email and then simon val and i we will go through them when we've got uh, when we've got them all lined up but we've got a bit of a busy run at the moment with the remaining races aragon mategi thailand australia malaysia and valencia so uh, give us a conversation starter 14 races down six to go still fabio quattararo has a 30 point lead over francesco pecco banyaya that 91 point turnaround in the last four grand prix to just 30 if that trend continues might we have the second Ducati Moto GP champion in uh, in their time in the big class. Let's let's find out. Let's see how it all pans out. In the meantime, keep in touch with the racecom for all your Formula One and MotoGP news. Val Simon and the crew tapping away with the MotoGP news, particularly with the two-day test that's happening tomorrow and the day after at Mizano. In the meantime, thank you very much for joining, tuning in. We will speak to you all very soon. Bye for now. The Athletic.